two Navy battleships had been at sea on maneuvers in heavy weather for several days. The visibility was poor because of the fog, so the captain remained on the bridge, keeping an eye on all the activity. <clears throat> Shortly after dark, the lookout reported, light bearing on the starboard bow. Is it steady or move, moving astern, the captain called out. Steady, captain, which mean we were, meant we were on a dangerous collision course with that ship. The captain called, signal that ship. We are on a collision course. Advise you change course 20 degrees. Back came a reply, advisable for you to change course 20 degrees. The captain said, send, I'm a captain, change course 20 degrees. Came the reply, I'm a seaman second class, you had better change course 20 degrees. The captain was furious. He spat out, send, I'm a battleship, change course 20 degrees. Back came the flashing light, I am a lighthouse. We changed course 20 degrees. The lighthouse had all the authority here over the battleship because of the rocks. The captain had effective faith and changed course to save his ship. King Jesus has the ultimate authority. And we must have effective faith in him for our salvation and for the thriving life that he has for us. We continue our series in Matthew today. As you've heard in chapter 8, what's the series called? Can you, can you shout it out? Follow the King. That's right. It's been a great study so far. We've been in the first glorious four chapters of the book of Matthew in the last three months. And you might be thinking, um, putting some math together in your head thinking, wait, we've gone through chapters 1 through 4. Why are we in chapter 8 today? Has anybody thought that already so far? All right, well, good catch if you did. Uh, my answer uh, to why that is gives us a chance to, this morning to see how Matthew organizes his gospel account and also the chance to make a big announcement today. The announcement will come in just a minute. But first, how does Matthew organize his gospel account. And if you have your bulletins, you'll see this. If you don't have your bulletins, raise your hand, and Chris will put one in your hand in a pen. I think those help follow along. This whole row needs one. All right, way to go. That, that might clean you out there, Chris. <clears throat> On your notes, you're going to see some, some information there. First of all, we Western thinkers are by far more comfortable with chronological order. We read books. It goes in the order of a sequence of time. But the ancient writers we're not concerned with chronological order virtually at all. They were more concerned with arranging their content based on their themes and the emphases that they had, the points they were trying to make. Now, it may drive us nuts that things don't appear in chronological order, right? Worse, it may, you know, it often causes people to accuse the Bible of having inconsistencies because things don't seem to line up in the timeline. But all it takes is a little bit of explanation about writing styles to make sense of all this. Ancient writers wrote in logical order more than chronological order, and this is how Matthew intentionally arranged the details that he was giving of Jesus, his life and person, death and burial and resurrection. So on your notes or on the screen, you see these are the five basic divisions around which Matthew organizes his material. And we've seen already in the first four chapters over the last three months King Jesus is presented to the world, the coming Messiah, 
the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. It's been a great journey so far. Well, you see the rest of the divisions. And then the next thing you see is Matthew organizes his gospel around five big discourses of Jesus, his big teachings. And you see them right there. You see the first one is a Sermon on the Mount. That's chapters 5 through 7. That's the first one. And then you see the, the other four throughout the course of the book. And Matthew arranges all his material around these five major discourses. And then in between those is all the cool stuff that we learn about Jesus, his life and his works and his person and his teachings. So far, we've studied some awesome details of Jesus' life in the first four chapters. And it, last week, we ended with the words, and great crowds followed him. And then as you go into chapter 5, you, you see, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he was up on the mount, that's when he delivered what's become known as the Sermon on the Mount, what many people consider the greatest sermon of all time. And certainly one of the greatest collections of spiritual wisdom and truth known to humanity. It's so great, in fact, chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, are so great that we are going to skip them. For now. And this is the big announcement, actually. Each fall, we're going to do, as a church, an all-church sermon and small group series. And last fall, we did the forgiveness series. That was just recently. It was great. The fall before that, we did the Why Am I Here series, which was also great. And it's great to have the youth ministry and the children's ministry, all the small groups and the sermons, all doing the same thing in the fall. And this fall, here's the announcement, we're going to do the Sermon on the Mount and dive deep into that great treasury of some of the most life-changing teaching that exists in humanity. So for now, we just simply skip over that great discourse and jump right into what happens next in the narrative. And that starts in chapter 8. In verse 1, that's where we are, and it's going to be amazing this fall, and let's see if today uh, is life-changing for us to do today. As we open God's Word and pray that the Holy Spirit speaks to us through the, the amazing things that Jesus does in chapter 8. Let me tell you about them. We continue Matthew's details of Jesus' life and works right after he comes down from the mount, after the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 8, and what chapter 8 and chapter 9 are going to do is present to us very clearly that all authority in heaven and earth is given to Jesus. He has all the authority. I love the, the passage in Colossians that Tristan just led us in, the preeminence of Jesus. He created all things. He's the reason all things were created. He was the word speaker that spoke through. He has authority. There is nothing in creation or the spiritual world that he does not have authority over. And he proves that today as he was God who was man walking on the earth as one of us to save sinners. That good, his goodness and grace are also available to us as are his authority through our effective faith. And so you see today's sermon title is Ultimate Authority and Effective Faith. That's his authority and our response in it. And it says part one... Did you notice that? Because this section of Matthew actually covers chapters 8 and 9, and so we're going to do part 2 next week. Here's our life-changing truth today. All authority is King Jesus, and oh, the glory awaiting for us to be discovered by our faith in him, when our faith is effective in him. Let's learn all that he has to teach us. 
Let's begin with the end of chapter 7, with Jesus coming down from the mount. Here's the, the bridge between the stories here. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. That's, that's the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. For he was teaching them as one who had what? Authority. Not like, his, not like their scribes. And then verse 1, chapter 8, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. There were crowds before he went to the mountain. They're at the mountain. The crowds gathered around him. Now, he was not after just gathering crowds, and we're going to see that very clearly today. He was after committed disciples of the kingdom of God. So let's see what he does. We see as we enter into chapter 8, a flurry of Jesus' works which he demonstrates his absolute authority and the glory of having faith in him over everything. Let's see first what he demonstrates as we get into the text. First, Jesus' authority and effective faith over diseases. And there are three categories of diseases that Jesus demonstrates his power and authority over. First is Jesus cleans the physically unclean. Immediately here, the crowd is gathered all around him, and immediately the dead, a man with leprosy comes right up to him, certainly splitting the clouds, the crowds. Leprosy is the deadliest of skin diseases, and people stayed away from that. Let's look at the text, verses 2 and 3. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, If you will, you, you can make me clean. If you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. Now, you could not get more unclean than leprosy. It was extremely deadly and very contagious. They, they were called like one dead while he lives. A, leopard, a leper's quarantine was absolute. They were not allowed out in society. They were required to stay in their area of the village, and shout unclean if anybody comes close to them. That's what they were required to do. They were also considered spiritually unclean and cursed by God. But Jesus. Jesus came to show his authority over all creation, including over disease, and to show his care for all people who have faith in him. Now see again the words in this text, this poor, humiliated, depressed, and desperate leper's words as he threw himself on the ground. They're splitting the crowds, worshiping Jesus, saying, if you will, you can make me clean. What a display of effective faith. Now, what we have to understand right now, I want to make sure you understand, here he is, Jesus is going to heal him because of his faith, but we need to understand the difference in how they work together between Jesus' sovereign power and Jesus' sovereign will. You see the leper, he says, if you will, you can make me clean. His statement includes both of those. If you have a disease, if you have cancer or any other disease, you should not doubt Jesus' authority over that disease. He can heal you. He is absolutely able to heal you. The question then becomes, is it his will for you to be made well right now? And that's the question that tests your faith in his power 
and your faith that he will work out the best good for his glory and for your life and for the world and his plan? Will it be the healing immediately that you may want, or will it be in the sickness, you following him in the sickness rather than out of it? This was the case with the Apostle Paul's thorn in the flesh. Remember that when the Apostle Paul wrote about, he had this thorn in the flesh that bothered him so greatly, and he asked three times for the Lord to take it away. And remember what the Lord said, no, because in this weakness, he said, you gain strength in the sufficiency of Christ. Okay, Paul said, I'm fine with that. Or Jesus may heal you, as he did the leper. See what Jesus did? He did not take a step back to to avoid accidental contact. What did he do? He reached out and touched him. He restored the man's dignity as well as his health. And then it says in verse 4, he did this as a proof of Jesus' authority. A few years ago, a well-known pastor was diagnosed with with an aggressive cancer and They said he didn't have long to live, and and he said these words to his church. He said, should you pray for a miracle? Well, you're free to do that, of course. But above all, I would say pray for the glory of God. If you think, where in all of history has God most glorified himself but at the cross of Jesus Christ? And it wasn't by delivering Jesus from the cross. This pastor died eight weeks after saying this. But he died modeling a complete trust in God's sovereign power and God's sovereign will that the best thing for everybody in God's plan is going to happen. The miracles continue now. Jesus works his will through physical disease. And now we're going to see next, starting in verse 5, Jesus heals the ethnically outcast. And here we see that the real faith of anyone, it doesn't matter who it is, Real faith from anyone in Jesus' authority is affected as he heals the paralyzed, paralyzed servant of one of the most hated people around at that time, a Roman centurion. But this centurion had faith. Let's see this amazing story. Verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, look at the humility of the centurion and the faith. Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say a word and my servant will be healed. He continues, for I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, no one in Israel have I found with such faith. And the centurion, to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus said, In all the people, the chosen nation of Israel, I have not found faith like this Roman soldier. Here's a man who has had authority. He's used to giving orders and being in charge, but yet when he came to the presence of Jesus, he realized he was under authority. And his faith 
was affected. There was no weakness in the centurion's faith in the absolute authority of Jesus. No weakness. It proved effective. Jesus healed his servant. And so I ask, is our humility before the ultimate authority of Jesus as strong as this man's, as this Roman soldier's? It has every reason to be. He's the same Lord with the ultimate authority. Now, even further beyond physically unclean and then the ethnically despised, next, Jesus isn't done. He continues. Jesus restores next the culturally marginalized. Let's follow along. Jesus, in verse 14, Jesus did miracles for the leper and, and then for the Roman, and now he goes to other marginalized members of society, starting with women. The Bible is very progressive in ancient days. He goes right to them. Social norms don't matter. In verses 14 and 15, Matthew records Jesus entering the home and healing the apostle Peter's mother-in-law who was sick with fever. And see the result of her effective faith. I love this, verse 15. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. So here she was on her deathbed from this fever. He heals her. He touched her. He heals her. And she gets right up and starts serving him right away. How cool is that? The same for us. When Jesus touches our life, this is our only response. Give our lives right to serving him. And now pay attention to, to the way Matthew summarizes many more healings after that and how they fulfill Isaiah's prophecy. In verses 16 and 17, that evening, he continues, got a busy night ahead, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. That's a quote from Isaiah 53, the great chapter of the suffering servant, the Messiah, who would come and take our illnesses and bear our diseases. Now, this verse is abused by the prosperity gospel teachers. And so I want to address that. The prosperity gospel, the health and wealth teaching, word of faith teachers and churches, because they get this theology wrong, and now that may make them wealthy, but it does a lot of damage. It's a deadly trap to people. And I've met a lot of people who have been caught in this and devastated by this false promise. Let me explain. Here's the question. Does Jesus' death on the cross guarantee that believers will be healthy and wealthy? Because that's the teaching. Is that a guarantee? Does Jesus have the power, the authority to do that? Of course. What does the Bible teach? Does the Bible teach that we will never need to endure sickness, poverty, and suffering if we just have enough faith? That's a bad promise and bad teaching. So why do they teach this? That Jesus died to make us rich and healthy. Because people flock to that kind of teaching. This, this distortion of the word of God, they flock by the millions. And it's just like Satan's temptation to Adam and Eve in the garden. The very first temptation and very first sin. And that is this, that suffering is taught to be the problem. Suffering is the problem and you can be like God and make it go away based on your own authority. We can be God's. Suffering is a problem, and we can end it based on our faith. Here's just one example from Joel Osteen. He's the big dog. 
so I'm going to use him. It's not hard to find quotes in this information age. Here's just one. Maybe Alzheimer's disease, I'm not going to say it in a southern accent, although I'm really tempted to. <sighs> With a big smile. Maybe Alzheimer's disease runs in your family genes. Now, Alzheimer's disease is a serious thing. But he's, here's, his, here's his teaching. But don't succumb to it. Instead, say, every day, my mind is alert. I have a good memory. Now, this sounds like pretty good motivational speaking. Here's what goes wrong. Every cell in my body is increasing and getting healthier. If you'll rise up in your authority, you can be the one to put a stop to the negative things in your family line. Start boldly declaring, God is restoring health unto me. I am getting better every day in every way. And this is the teaching. The source of it is you, and the problem is the suffering. The solution is our own authority. And this feels good. It goes on and on. And this feels good. But it's not biblical, it's a trap, and it's not what Matthew 8, 17 or Isaiah 53, 4 that he's quoting is teaching at all. Let me explain what Matthew is teaching, what Jesus is teaching here, what Isaiah taught. What Matthew's doing is by connecting Jesus' healing authority to Isaiah's prophecy, he's saying, yes, this is the Messiah, and he's come with all authority. Matthew is showing us that Jesus has the authority to overcome all suffering. It's his authority, not us, and it's for his glory, and it's for his purpose, and it's for his will, and that is the point of the cross, why Jesus came. Suffering isn't the problem. Jesus did not come to die for the end of suffering and poverty. Jesus came to die on a cross to address the root problem. All suffering springs from the root of sin. That's what Jesus came to take care of. Not the suffering, ultimately, but the sin which causes the suffering. So can Jesus take away all of our suffering, pain, and poverty? Can he? Yes, he can. And sometimes he does. And we have every license and freedom to pray for that, if that be his will. And he does, if that's his will. The miracles in Matthew 8 and then 9, one right after the other, reveal Jesus' authority and ultimately what it's going to be like for us all in the coming kingdom. When all suffering is gone, all inequity is gone, all prejudice is gone, all pain, all tears are gone. And that is our ultimate hope that only we have as we follow the king and believe in him. In the meantime, we live in a world of suffering. And we'll see repeatedly in Matthew as we go that our suffering is for purpose. It leads to holiness. It leads to stronger faith. It leads to greater things. It leads to bigger testimony. And sometimes if a, if a miraculous or providential healing takes place, that leads to the glory of God, and he can do that. But we see in Matthew, and we're going to see this over and over, just two chapters from now, we're going to see that our faith in Jesus actually increases suffering. He tells his disciples in Chapter 10, they're going to be flogged, they're going to be betrayed, they're going to be hated, they're going to be persecuted, or today we'd call it canceled. They're going to be in this world for following him. Bring it on. Because Jesus is our authority and he's our king. And it's for his glory and his purposes will be the best that he works out through all the suffering. You know, the Apostle Paul talks this. If, you've read, if you read Paul's 13 epistles, they're just filled with this teaching. So much so that for preachers today to miss it, it 
seems like it would have to be intentional. Listen to what Paul says, just a few examples. Romans 5, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and character, hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Philippians 3.10, my goal is to know him, my goal is to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Romans 8, 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's what the Bible teaches. We have the privilege to follow this king in the face of anything. Now, Jesus may take your suffering away. And I've prayed for that for many of you, and we'll continue. Ask him. And he rewards persistent and persevering prayers. He's got the power and authority to do it. But see also that there's often a much greater purpose in the suffering. Now, this biblical teaching may not fill stadium-sized churches, but that's okay. The gospel seed, the true gospel seed and preaching of the word, the actual word, still grows. It grows. And it will not leave you in bondage and disappointment and confusion and rejection of God. It will leave you free in the power and purpose of God. Free, not in bondage, not in confusion, but in peace and power. That's trusting in Jesus' authority. Now, Jesus has been putting his authority and the effectiveness of our faith on full display here over diseases. And now we see him moving on in verse 18. Jesus' authority and effective faith over disciples. Jesus' authority, effective faith over disciples. Talk is cheap. And people often don't mean what they say. And Jesus is going to catch some of us saying things that we don't mean. And not counting the cost, not truly following him. So starting in verse 18, we see two followers, followers approach him. Follower one, remember he was popular, you know, he, was, he was a hot thing. Very attractive, confident. So here we see two followers. Follower one is a scribe. In verse 19, he says, Teacher, I will follow you everywhere I go or wherever you go. In verse 20, Jesus re replies. He sees right through the, the guy's empty talk. He said, Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, Jesus was testing this wealthy man. You really want to follow me? Anywhere, everywhere, any circumstance, even losing your home, if that's what it takes. Jesus isn't looking for Twitter followers with no commitment. Again, he's looking for committed disciples of the kingdom of God. And he's worthy. And you may lose everything else in this world, but you gain the greatest treasure, Jesus himself and his kingdom. When you follow him, when you obey him fully, committedly. Now, then follower two comes up and says, Lord, let me first go bury my father. It's not a bad request on the surface, but Jesus sees through what's in his heart. It's not about his father. The issue is hesitation and prioritizing other things above following Jesus. And Jesus says this in reply, verse 22, Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This was a test. 
And it was to teach this follower that if we recognize Jesus' ultimate authority, nothing else, nothing else will take priority over him when we really see who King Jesus is, what he deserves. Nothing in the world will ever take his place. These two men are all talk. They're the hasty follower who hasn't counted the cost and the hesitant follower who has too little faith. And Jesus knows that both of these guys will fall away unless their faith increases. It becomes real. And so he does the loving thing and calls them out. So let Jesus' challenge here strengthen your faith today doesn't want a fan. He wants a faithful follower. And that's the best thing for us. Now the snapshots of Jesus' authority have been rolling on and they continue here. First over diseases and then his authority over followers. And now Jesus' authority and effective faith in disasters. Some of you might be going through disasters in life. And if you're not right now, the next one's probably going to come. Let's see what he does here to to speak to you in those disasters. Jesus calms a storm next and blows everybody's mind. Start in verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. I love that. And they went and woke him up, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing out here. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. In the original language, the words used for great storm is the greatest storm, and the great calm is the most complete calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? So Jesus was asleep on the boat during a a big storm. Why? Because that's what it's like being completely free from fear. That's what it looks like. That's nice. Now, in their fear, his followers demonstrated some faith. The first thing they said was, save us, Lord. You know, so at least they're turning to him. But what they said next, we are perishing, reveals their fear and their doubt. That's okay. We can relate to that. We have some faith. We have some fear. We have some doubt, right? So what did Jesus do? He said, oh, you of little faith. And Jesus, teaching them that they should trust him, steps out, calms the sea, and blows their mind. The dripping wet disciples stand astonished at the awesome power of King Jesus. They were starting to figure this out. Who is this? This is the king of the universe. They were starting to truly, fully believe in the real Jesus. Are you? Like with the diseases, not all the storms will end in your life immediately. A bully may continue to bully. Those false accusations might not go away. Your marriage might not be healed this week, this month. The storms may continue, but Jesus himself, he may take them away. But he will be with you in the midst of the storms all the way through until they work out their purposes. Is your faith in him effective so that you will be able to survive and even thrive in the disaster? You will. So praise God. 
We finish today with one more astounding miracle. And in that, Jesus' authority and effective faith is shown over demons. And this is a fascinating event that prompts our imagination and some questions. Demons possess two men violently, and we learn about that. And yet these powerful demons are deathly afraid of Jesus. They recognize his authority, and they ask him to cast them into a herd of pigs. Let's, let's read the text, starting verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, <clears throat> two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. They were so taken over, living in the tombs. But look what they do in verse 29. And behold, they cried out, What do you have to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know that there's a time. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, if you, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. And so they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, a whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. There's a lot going on here. These powerful demons hate God, and they want to do everything to destroy what God loves. They want to destroy us. And they do so with sin, and here's the process of sin. Sin feels good at first, but see sin's effects. It spreads, it hooks, it grows, it becomes antisocial, sin dissolves our character, it distorts our reason. Romans 1 gives a cycle that ends in a debased mind as we drift further and further into its grips. It brings misery, addictions, it and it dreads Jesus, it dreads righteousness. It fights from any hint of, of conviction or righteousness. Stay away from sin from the, from the get-go. Don't let demons in your life, which are very active today even. The devil is looking for a foothold in your life. They're working on our hearts right now. There's a lot of text in, in the Bible about spiritual war. But these demons come face to face with Jesus. And they're powerless against him, and they're terrified of him. Grasp these words from James 2.19, which says this, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So they're fearful of the authority of King Jesus, as powerful as they are. Listen, demons fear because of their belief. We often fear because of our unbelief. They know Jesus. Do we know the real Jesus? Demons have reason to fear, but we, having faith in Jesus, do not. We have no reason to fear. And faith in the authority of Jesus is the end of fear. And that's a good thing. Again, brothers and sisters, all authority in heaven and earth belongs to Jesus. It's why we call him king. creator of the universe, loving God, gracious God. There is nothing that Jesus does not have authority over, nothing. And his power and goodness and grace are available to us today. 
through anything that we face, he's with us through our faith in him. Through our faith in him. And you can choose to put your faith in him today. So what do we do? What do we do now? Here's a next step that's got some parts to it. I'm going to encourage you to trust Jesus, to submit to King Jesus, to rest in Jesus, to reject fear because your faith is in him, and to rejoice in King Jesus' authority today. You may be sick or weak today. Think of the leper's faith in Jesus' authority and care for him. He has that same authority and care for you. You may have a loved one suffering. Remember the Roman centurion who prayed and asked Jesus on behalf of his loved one to turn to King Jesus in faith and ask for deliverance. There may be a disaster in your life, or when the next one comes, rest in Jesus' authority over it. You may battle demons, they are terrified of Jesus' authority. You only have to stop playing games, speaking empty words, and having little faith, little commitment to Jesus. Give him your all. Believe in him. We've heard from the Holy Spirit today, speaking through God's word. If you have not repented and trusted in Jesus, repented from being your own savior, from being trapped and trying to to earn salvation on your own, repent and turn from that and just trust Jesus. He's the one who died on the cross and gives you his salvation. Then true believers and followers of King Jesus, we can be the most secure, peaceful, purposeful, hopeful people in the world. And we need to be because he's on the throne. It's all resting in Jesus' power, not our own. He knows what's going to work best, and he may deliver you instantly right now. And you can believe that he can if he wills. But if he doesn't, It might be ultimately in heaven. We have that hope. But even now, through our faith in him, he will carry us along through anything. Anything. The Lord is for you, not against you. And he will give us the best for us and for his glorious good. Will you trust him and commit your life to follow him? Let's pray. And I pray that you do that right now from where you sit. Lord God, you speak through your word. What a gift, what power, what truth. It makes sense of a senseless world. It makes total clear sense. And we are filled with gratitude for the rest we can have in your authority. We worship you. I pray that we do now in in our hearts as we confess our sins and, and know that you're faithful and just to forgive those sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Bring us totally in harmony with you again, under your power, eradicate fear. Lord, I pray that we'll respond now with that prayer of commitment in our hearts and in our songs, which you've ordained for worship and praise. We rejoice in that. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.